It is easy to talk big online. I don't know how many of you are involved in sports, even now, or perhaps uh, in years bygone. Um, but the notion of a braggart is not uncommon. There is one, there's always that one person who boasts about how good they are. Uh, who will post online about what they're going to do in the game that is coming up shortly. And how they're going to win and defeat all who would come. Until game day. Until you arrive on the field. <laughs> Until you have to face that bowling, <laughs> then you recognize, whoa, where was all the talk? Where is the action to back up what was said? It is easy to speak while far away. Especially in our online world, there are persons who would be referred to as keyboard warriors. Hmm? Even on the call-in programs, you have persons who are calling and they will say the most, but they neglect to share the name, and so they hide behind the radio. It is easy to talk when away. Comment from us as Asian people who will say we are very bold. The speech. He sounds good from far, but. There is no follow-through, there is no backing up of what was previously said. This seems to be the accusation leveled against the Apostle Paul himself. That when he was over in a way, when he was distant, when he was apart from this congregation, the Corinthian church, that he was writing with boldness. He had all of these things to say, but when he showed up on the scene, there seemed to be timidity. There seemed to be, he seemed to be missing in action. I, of course, we are only listening to one side of the conversation, of course. But we can infer from what we read here, Paul gives us a hint in the very first verse. He starts off by saying, I, Paul, myself. What is he doing there? He is, he is making it explicitly personal. He says, I, Paul, this is me. <laughs> it is me and this is Paul whom you know. I entreat you, and even furthermore, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, there is an overemphasis here on him being gentle in his walk, writing. Because it seems the accusation is what is followed there in the hyphenated section that says what? I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I am away. <laughs> he's received that news, he's, he's taken that jab, as it were. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you, I'm speaking to you now in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And what he's doing is that he is as gently as possible, and contrary to the accusations leveled against him, he is going to once again assert his apostolic authority. We know that this is something that he wrestled with um, over the course of his apostleship, and there are some who are saying that he is not legitimate, he is not valid. In fact, they cast aspersions on his character and they say, they offer the slander that even Paul would have had motives that were untoward. And so the apostle has to repudiate these slanderous messages. 
And he issues a warning in this text that he will deal with anybody who needs, who continues to bring trouble on the Corinthian church. And so we see then at the outset that there is opposition to the gospel. The theme of the entire letter, we don't have time for all of that. We see that there is an emphasis on the minister himself in the church. The persons to whom ministry is given, or the ministries, if you will love that word that I just made up. And the ministry itself, all three of these are under attack from the enemy. And so we see that apostolic authority, which he asserts in verse 1 through 2, apostolic authority rightly expressed is able to greet people appropriately, right? That standard, that's basic, he's coming forward with a kindness and a meekness and an emphasis on his gentleness in his writing. Paul is no stranger to writing with um, language that can be aggressive. Anybody read Galatians lately, right? He let them know what? All foolish Galatians who has what? That's aggressive. And so he is no stranger to having to intensify his tone. But here he responds to this accusation by greeting them in this appropriate fashion. But secondly, apostolic authority rightly expressed not only greets appropriately, verse 1, but 2, it warns people appropriately as well. He says, verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I come or show it against some who suspect of us of walking to the flesh. Listen. Paul says, these are the accusations and you guys are saying, right, that when I show up on the scene, I don't have much to say or I'm ineffective. It may very well be that the persons who are opposing the ministry to work in conduct cards are saying, listen, this apostle, apostle talks really good from far, but when he shows up, he's ineffective. I mean, you know, the Corinthian church had a ton of problems, right? And so you were ineffective in dealing with this issue. There are more issues and people are saying, when he comes, he's, he's timid. He's ineffective, he's humble, he's low, is the accusation. And Paul says, listen, I beg of you not to dare me to show you that this is not the case. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. I may not have to exercise my apostolic authority when I come on the scene, when I arrive in person. All these Zoom meetings are one thing, but when I come on the scene now, I beg that I don't have to show you an increase in my authority. If nothing changes, this is what I will need to do. If the situation is not resolved in Corinth, then there will be an intensification. And so he's exercising this warning on the basis of his apostolic authority. I was thinking of this, and you know it's often the case, I don't know how right this is, but you know the same. Um, perhaps a mother may say she's keeping the children all day, they're acting up, and she says what? Wait until your father comes home. <laughs> and Paul says, I'm coming home. I'm coming to visit. It may be a very well be the third visit. And I beg of you that when I come, you have these issues sorted out before I get there. And so this is what we see in verses 1 through Two. So there is opposition in ministry. And what we need to do is to acknowledge that and not gloss over that. Right? In church, we will have challenges. In church, there will be problems. This morning, at Berean, we were looking at the book of Acts in chapter 6. And in the daily ministration, the widows were being what? 
neglected or overlooked. Not intentional, it wasn't a, a racial issue or ethnic issue, it was an administrative challenge that they needed to overcome. And so there are challenges within the church. And so what we see here is that there is a challenge to Paul's authority, and what that done, does is it disrupts the unity in the Corinthian church. Right? Because if they can challenge him on the basis of his authority, then why do we need to follow him? Why do we need to listen to what he says, right? Why do we need to pay attention or obey? So the opposition in ministry is real. And what Paul does in these next few verses that we will look at before we conclude is that he draws metaphors from warfare. Not just any warfare, but siege warfare. The warfare where that seeks to dominate and completely take over a territory. The devices used, as you are probably aware, battering rams and so on. These are the devices that people in this context have in the back of their minds. And so when Paul speaks to the, uh, the idea of waging war, these are the images that come to mind. But folks, we exist in a ecclesiastical climate where when you say spiritual warfare in church there are tons of false notions that come to mind including but not limited to things like binding the devil have you heard of this praying hedges of thorns of protection around people here's one that I always challenge and fail to understand this idea of Canceling things. Have you heard this before? I cancel this, I cancel that. Have you heard that? So you cancel these generational curses and, and so you see this verbal proclamation. And I always say, well, why did you just cancel everything? Why did you just do that one time for everybody? And none of the things mentioned here, of course, you can't get into each and every one of these. And that's not my goal this evening at all. But just to say there is confusion about what true biblical spiritual warfare is. And the Apostle Paul is going to let us know in these verses what is involved in biblical spiritual warfare. And so we see in verse 3 through to the first part of verse 4, the nature of biblical spiritual warfare. Let's look at it. Verse 3 tells us, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And of course then, we walk in the flesh. What is he saying there? We are human beings. We have, we are, we are flesh and body, flesh and bone, right? And that's how we live, that's how we move, right? This is how we operate. But that, that is the reality in the physical. But we don't wage war according to, and he reuses the word flesh, but in another way now, to speak to human needs or human resources. We do not accomplish the work of God by depending on our own power or strength to do that. And again, this is one side of the conversation. And so we will have to infer that this was some sort of an accusation that was being leveled against the Apostle Paul as it relates to his operation. It said that he really is not effective, he has no power because he's operating according to the flesh. That's possibly what his opponents were saying. And Paul is saying, no, I'm a human being, let's acknowledge that, but we do not wage war according to human strategies or means or resources. In fact, verse 4, the corrective is this. What does it say? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have what? 
divine power. So biblical spiritual warfare is not of human means or resources, verse 3. But biblical spiritual warfare is of divine power. And so if we are going to be obedient to the cause of Christ and to fulfill our mission in the local church, we must have a distinction between human needs or resources, strategies, whatever, programs, whatever, uh, schemes of man must be set apart from the operation of divine power in the life of the individual, of course, and of the church. So the nature of biblical warfare is what? It is of divine power, not of flesh. And then the strategy involved in biblical spiritual warfare will complete then the closing verses. The nature of biblical warfare, verses 3 to 4, is of divine power. The strategy of biblical warfare has to do then with three main activities. Let's see if you can identify them. Alright, verse 4 tells us that we, we wage war or the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. That's the first action. We destroy strongholds. So biblical spiritual warfare strategy then must destroy. It must destroy. And the text identifies the object of that destruction and that is strongholds. You ask yourself, what are these strongholds? But we don't have to guess because the text tells us, verse 5, we destroy, here are the strongholds, two examples of those strongholds. Here's the first one, arguments, logismos, logic, thinking. And so these are arguments that are designed uh, to be comfortable to the world. What we understand here is that this is a thinking that people are promulgating that allows them to continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They continue to disobey the commandments of the Lord, especially as given through his apostle. Because remember, he's wrestling with a lot of, as I say, with many children present, challenges in the church, right? We know what's going on in the Corinthian church, right? And so these are the things. There's a, there's a thinking behind that. And I've said here, summarized it, that that thinking is aberrant thinking. So we must lovingly in spiritual warfare, here's true spiritual warfare, it's not rebuking the devil, blaming the devil, canceling curses, or anything of the sort. It has to do with these actions. And here's the first one, destroying, and my professors in, in school would say stinking thinking. Lovingly confronting aberrant thinking. Arguments that justify rationalizations of sin in the church. Spiritual warfare confronts those thoughts and those processes. So we destroy those arguments. So remember, he has in his mind the illustration of siege warfare. And so you will, you will imagine that in a, a war scene, there are buildings that must be completely obliterated. And we don't have to look very far for examples in our modern day. Because we're right now experiencing the, the Russo-Ukrainian war. And, and again, regardless of what side you are on, you can all agree there is much destruction taking place, right? We have seen the footage. This is, this is what, he's, again, he's not saying spiritual warfare is not about destroying people. 
Spiritual warfare is about destroying the thought processes of people. This is where the battle is. It is in the mind. It doesn't mean that it's imaginary, it is not real, but that is where it is located. Our thought lives, folks, is where the battle really lies. And so we see that these strongholds are one, arguments. They sound good, but their, their, their reasoning is fallacious, if you would allow. All right? Um, I am not uh, far into fallacious reasoning when it comes to mathematics. My day is doing CXC math. Right? Anybody ever get out the right answer, but the way you got there was completely erroneous? Huh? You look at the back of the book for the answers, you look at the back of the book, you look at 42. But the way you got 42, it was horrible. If you use that method again, you're going to get everything else wrong. Yeah? So a Roman clock is right at least twice a day. Right? That's what my math life is like in school. Right? So, so, so you don't want to rely on thinking that's not dependable because it's not reliable, right? The, the, the reasoning, the methodology that got you there is not correct. So this is fallacious reasoning. And so spiritual warfare is confronting people's thinking through an issue or challenge that they have and correcting their course in the way they are processing that problem. Of course, then secondly, the text tells us that we don't want to destroy these arguments, these logical, um, again, aberrant thought processes, but every, the Holy Spirit says, lofty opinion. These lofty opinions speak to, again, you have warfare in the back of your mind, so you come in to infiltrate an area, and these are, they're, they're just tall, tall buildings that are challenging to surmount, and, and the person, persons cooped up in those tall buildings, they think that they have what? The advantage, right? Nobody plays Call of Duty, because you all holy, right? But, <laughs> but when you want to be, right, you want to have the like, advantage. Because you, you want to be able to see everybody who's coming. And so there's almost, a, there's almost an arrogance there. I'm on top. You can't get me. The way I'm thinking is through, right? There's an arrogance, there's a pride. Spiritual, biblical spiritual warfare confronts the prideful arguments of men. And so, we see every argument, every lofty opinion that has raised against the knowledge of God. Again, there is this opposition, right? There is this contrast. There is the, the thought processes, the logic, the, the twisted thinking of the world is contrasted with the knowledge of God which is pure, which is holy, which is righteous. And so, we must then, if we are going to engage in biblical spiritual warfare, we must not be distracted by these man-made schemas of doing war, right, that are very popular, but we must hold to the biblical approach to and strategy to biblical warfare. The first of that is that we must destroy. Secondly, it tells us that we must also do what? The end of verse 5. Take every thought what? Captive. So taking captive. Again, the reference is to warfare. What do you call persons who are taken captive in warfare? Prisoners of war. What is happening? Their hands are bound, their feet are bound, and they are, they are 
shoveled off and, and the thing about it is that they are now under and operating under a new authority, a new regime. And so we have to take those thoughts, bind them up, right, and submit them to a new authority. This is the way I used to think before I came to Christ. I know all of these thoughts are associated with that before Christ's life must be submitted, must be taken captive then to Christ and his operation. So, somebody says it this way, that there is a kind of device, there is a kind of design then that had these Corinthian people and pre that prevented them from knowing God. Of course, there is military imagery here. There is a hostility that is encountered. And Paul is experiencing this hostility at the hands of his rivals. But to quote, but we should also recognize that there is a general reference to the characteristic of unbelievers that hinders their response to the gospel of Christ. And so we see in this text, there is a situation, there is a situation that Paul is dealing with specifically. But there is general application to those who have faulty patterns of thought when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must take those thoughts captive and submit them under a new authority what are these thoughts that we can encounter in this day well this speaks to the many isms that we will encounter these isms are thought processes that have wicked perhaps even demonic root paganism is one such ism paganism living for pleasure as primary and so whatever feels good I do that is a faulty pattern of thought materialism consumerism atheism there is no God I do not believe in God you may say agnosticism I don't know if there is a God that doesn't get you off the hook and so all of these isms then are where we engage and wage spiritual warfare. We must take those methodologies and ways of thinking captive. Folks, I pause here and wonder how many of us as believers have subscribed to some of these isms. Many of us as believers, perhaps even in our very own homes and families, have adopted and fallen prey to these isms have we found ourselves with tremendous challenge with our finances because we have given over to consumerism have we not been as engaged with our families because we have given ourselves and our lives over to workaholism <laughs> How many of these faulty thought practices and patterns of thought have we as believers adopted and believed ourselves to
to be fine so long as we're not far from, far from that mouth, rolling at the floor, rolling on the floor, etc. Right? We're not in spiritual warfare because there is no overt manifestation. And yet our homes are in trouble, yet our thoughts and our minds are a mess. Why? Because we have not placed those thoughts under a new authority. Biblical spiritual warfare must destroy. Biblical spiritual warfare must take captive. And then we see the apostles saying that biblical spiritual warfare must, verse 6, be ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience, your obedience, sorry, is complete. So you talk about punishment in warfare. You talk about those who are court-martialed for their insubordination. And the Apostle Paul is willing to confront the problems of the church in Corinth. And he's willing to do so with an appropriate, I say, escalated force. If nothing changes. What's the challenge? There is slander. There are persons who are listening to Paul's opponents. Right? Who are doubting his apostolic authority. That's what's going on. There's disobedience. We don't have to do what he says. We don't have to follow his leadership. We can live how we want. We like these isms. We're going to keep them. That's what's going on. Paul says if nothing changes... Here's what we need to do. There will be punishment. His desire that is that everything will change. Remember verse 2. I beg that you don't, right? I beg that you get yourselves together before I get here. But he's very much willing to do this. It is perhaps akin to the way in which a military unit would lock down a particular area. An area prone to rebellion. And you can't move into hardly breathe unless you have some sort of permission or pass or something. That's the sort of intensity that he's describing. In fact, if we look at, right, this is the last section, by the way, this law is going to include, but if we look at the last chapter and verse 2, this is 2 Corinthians 13, 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, you have it? I will not spare them. Wow. This is intense. If you drop your eyes down to verse 10, what does he say? For this reason, this is 2 Corinthians 13, 10. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be, what's the word you have? I have severe. I am writing these things so that when I come, I will not have to be severe in my own use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And so, folks, when we're dealing with sin in the church and opposition within the church, we must understand the importance of the battle that takes place within the mind. The battle in your thought life. And the apostle is taking it so seriously that he's willing to implement whatever disciplinary action is necessary so that the right outcome will be achieved. This is how important it is that we wage warfare biblically. Because to fail to obey the word of God 
is to suffer the consequences of being disciplined. And nobody wants that. We see yet again, in, if you go back to verse 6, the third mention of a very important word. It appears in verse 5 twice and in verse 6. And that is the word every. Every lofty opinion and every thought and verse 6, every disobedience. This highlights the completeness, of course, of the anticipated victory. Folks, there is no wiggle room here. There ought to be no thoughts in our lives that we entertain, that we allow to fester. Somebody asked me a couple Sundays ago, he says, um, it, you know, Pastor, and they call me Paul, right? He says, I'm struggling with these thoughts that I have. How do I deal with this? Right? The illustration I often use is this. You know, an iron, a hot iron. I don't use it much. <laughs> a hot iron is effective, right? But that's going to get wrinkles on your clothes. If you leave the iron there, you drop some water on it, what's going to happen? Can't control the water dropping necessarily. You can't control that thought coming into your life. But if you remain hot, if you remain connected, if you remain obedient and faithful, when those thoughts come, they're going to be destroyed. They'll be dismissed. They'll be taken captive. They'll be overcome. If that iron is cold or off, what happens? Water stops, trickle, 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 and those thoughts are entertained. More thoughts are entertained. And a trickle becomes a stream, and a stream becomes a river, and a river becomes an ocean, and an ocean becomes a flood. I know I'm overwhelmed because I haven't taken every thought captive. And so, there is a totality that needs to be addressed here, and that's what the text says. Everything, no wiggle room. So in warfare, we need to be relentless when it comes to taking our thoughts captive. There is a fictional character, and I, don't, I might get in trouble for this one. Famous quote that goes around the internet where the warrior king as he's about to launch into battle in this particular film, he says, give them nothing but take from them everything. Alright. And so this is it. Are we we're dealing with certain things in our lives, but we're allowing these thoughts to ruminate and fester and we enjoy these ones. We have not subjected these thoughts to the Lordship of Christ. And so there is no obedience there, and that is how trouble comes. And so the weapons of our warfare then are worn out in three ongoing actions. Destruction, capture, and punishment. There is an acknowledgement that we must destroy false arguments. Every proud obstacle that inhibits the knowledge of God, somebody says. We must carry off into ca captivity for the obedience of Christ. Every opposing design. And we must hold ourselves in readiness to punish every expression of obedience. What are those strong rules in our minds? What are those areas that we have not yet surrendered? May it be that we would, by the grace of God, 
wage warfare according to God's biblical plan and program. That there will be a defense that is relentless and we don't let any thought fester in our minds. Now I don't know how it's been going with you in your mind this week. I don't know what has been a burden for you. I don't know what has been a stronghold in your life, but those who name the name of Christ have that power to overcome. And you can do that in Jesus' name.